Despite our own shocking lack of maturity, we do discuss mature subject matter, including coarse language and violence, fairly often. Listener discretion is advised. We have no qualifications. We are not professionals. Strap in, it's gonna get weird. Welcome to Weird Shit Weekly, where we talk about weird shit weekly. I'm Sam. And I'm Alexis. And this is a podcast where we agree on a different prompt each week, go off and do our research, and come back and tell each other about our findings. This week's prompt is Curiosity Killed the Cat. Hell yeah, dude. All right, well, thanks for tuning in last week for our five dedicated listeners. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. All, all of whom are our family members, but... Yeah, you know. That means nothing. Yeah, brush that off. All right, well, let's jump into it. Let's Since jump you in. you went first last week, I will go first this week. That sounds good. As is the order of the universe. As is, for sure. Let's hear what you found. Yeah, so... <laughs> Hilariously, we both went in very similar, but still different directions with this prompt. Kind of just tossing aside the curiosity aspect. Although these are very curious tales. They are curious tales for sure. Yeah, I'd say undoubtedly. At the end of the day, the cat person in me won out. Today, I'm going to be talking about the man-eater of Champawat. Ooh. Oh, do Might tell. be mispronouncing that but bear with me. So tigers have a bit of a reputation to uphold. Uh, according to records, tigers have killed more humans than any other big cat. Oh, wow. It's difficult to establish a firm estimation of how many people have been killed by tigers, mainly because the vast majority of these attacks occur in rural forested villages in Asia where sources could be difficult to access and also unreliable. Tigers of the World, second edition by Ronald Tilson and Philip Nyhus, or Nyhaus, Nyhus, examines the available English language sources spanning from 1800 all the way to 2009 when the book was published, and they assert that the reliable reports represent an estimated 373,000 human deaths at the Claws of Tigers between in that like 210 year span notably this number excludes several anecdotal and historical reports that could not be quantifiably verified and of course as the study notes they only assessed english language sources or sources that have been translated into english and that is not the predominantly spoken language in the location of the vast majority of these attacks. So yeah. uh, keep that in mind. The number is in all likelihood much higher. Mm, okay. Today, I'm going to be talking about the most prolific of these feline felons, the man-eater of Champawat, a homicidal royal Bengal tigress who was active throughout Nepal and India in the first decade of the 1900s. Oh, wow. She has been listed. Yeah, so literally, like, she died in 1907. Oh, wow. So for the, like, tail end of the last of the 1800s into the beginning of the 1900s, she was 
out and about killing people. Oh, you know what? I gotta say, I kind of like her energy. She's out <laughs> there. <laughs> she's just, she's just out there slaying. But literally. Literally. <laughs> yeah, I think she's definitely got like, I don't know, serious big cat energy. Serious man killer energy. So she actually has been listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as responsible for the highest number of human deaths from a tiger. Wow. Her alone. Crazy. And that number is truly shocking. Some 436 people. Really? Oh my god. Wow. She's hustling. (laughs) To put that into perspective, that number which most people agree on as verifiable deaths from her directly, would make her the single deadliest serial killer ever recorded, man or beast. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like it. Jesus. So, she began her reign of terror in a small village in western Nepal. It's actually rather difficult to get concrete sources year by year for her attacks. Uh, Again, because it's very difficult to compile a lot of these sources, especially because so many years have passed. Uh, But the general consensus is that her killing spree lasted about a decade until her death in 1907. Mm, Okay. So after the first smattering of attacks in this western Nepalese village, hunters were sent to dispatch her. When they failed, Nepalese army soldiers followed suit, but their search also proved fruitless. In a last-ditch effort to get rid of the threat, they organized a massive patrol to flush her out and force her to abandon the territory. Killing her was just considered a bonus. They just wanted to get her out at this point. She crossed the river Sarda into India, so crossing the border into another country at this point, and promptly resumed her murderous behaviors in the Kumaon district. She adopted a hunting strategy that allowed her to avoid capture, keeping a large territory of multiple villages and traveling as much as 32 kilometers in a day. Oh, wow. Adrift in this huge expanse of forests and settlements, she became almost otherworldly, menacing, lethal, and all but impossible to track down. I'm sure you can imagine trying to find one tiger in possibly thousands of square kilometers is of thick forest is borderline impossible. Yeah, that seems like a fruitless effort. (laughs) All of her attacks occurred in broad daylight with the majority of her victims being women and children who ventured into the forest to forage for resources, as was typical in the culture of the time. Right. People were so afraid that they would hide in their homes after hearing tiger roars in the distance in the woods, because she was known to actually enter villages, too. Wow, geez, the balls on this one. Like, serious tiger lady balls, dude. Yeah, oh yeah, big tiger energy. And she'll kill you. Like, that's the craziest thing to me is that she just, she was killing them. And she wasn't just killing people for the sake of killing people. She was eating them, too. So she was clearly dependent on humans as her main source of food. Oh, 100%. Yeah. That seems that she's, you know, developed that taste and that's what she relies on. Yeah. 
And that's like terrifying to know that and just be living in your village and know yeah. that like you have to go out, you have to find food, you have to hunt, you have to forage. But every couple weeks, someone turns up dead and what's left of them is like traces at the very best. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're just like very incomplete remains. Terrifying. Yeah. Gross, terrifying, wild. And it's it's worth noting that this is incredibly abnormal behavior for a tiger. Um, Not only are humans nowhere near their typical meal, but by their very nature, they're actually conflict averse and timid is the wrong word to use but they'll sooner spook and move territories completely when encroached upon rather than expose themselves to the danger of being hunted and shot Hmm. okay so again our lady here has serious lady balls one of my favorite bits about this tale is it's not actually just a story of a vicious man-eating tiger Mm -hmm. it's also this origin story for this borderline mythical man named Jim Corbett, who was a professional hunter naturalist of British descent who was born in the Kumayan region um, in British India at the time. Um, And he essentially like went on to achieve, I don't know, almost like Steve Irwin or David Attenborough level acclaim. Jim is a really notable figure in colonial British India. Um, And then back in 1907, uh, he, this is, this kind of precedes that reputation, but he had cultivated a reputation as a keen tracker of big cats. And he was a professional hunter at the time. And so he was commissioned by the British government to put an end to the Champawat tiger's killing spree. Ah, okay. So this, this is like an Indiana Jones vibe. Exactly. Almost. This is hmm. like a classic, like, all right, this is like a Moby Dick kind of situation here where he's got to, he's got to hunt down the killer before the killer gets him. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is spicy. So, in 1907, after killing and eating 16-year-old Premka Devi, a girl from the village of Fungar near the city of Champawat, the tiger left a blood trail that Corbett followed. To his horror, he soon realized that the cat was also tracking him and only managed to scare her away by firing two warning shots from his rifle. Isn't that, like, a classic, like, movie scene? Like, this whole thing is so cinematic. That's so crazy. He's face-to-face with a tiger who he's trying to track. Joke's on him. Tiger's tracking him, hunting him down. And he's got to pull an Indiana Jones, get that rifle out, scare the tiger away to escape with his life. Which is crazy when you consider oh. that, like, it's it's actually documented that tigers are less likely to attack armed humans. So... Whether that's just an innate kind of realization that they've, you know, because even if you're, if you're holding a rifle that, I mean, you could hit somebody with that. So it could be that they're just computing that could be that they've been shot before or seen guns before. Um, But the, the boldness of it 
is really impressive. And the... Yeah. Like, it's just so wild. And granted, he was alone at the time. So this is his story. He's saying that this is what happened. And mm, okay. it's not unlikely that elements of this story have been embellished a little bit, but the facts of the case kind of remain the same in that everybody is very confident that this specific tigress was hunting, killing, and eating upwards of 400 villagers over the like decade that she was active, which is insane. That's an insane quantity of people to die. Yeah, I was gonna say that's an insane amount of people to die just like I was gonna say at the hands of a tiger, at the paws of a tiger? At the claws at the of a tiger. At 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 the paws, the claws, the jaws of a tiger. But over ten year even over ten years, that's an insane amount of people. That's crazy. Well that's that's like half a thousand people. Yeah, that's like just under that's like forty four people a year. Yeah. That's that's crazy. That's that's how you know it's that's a real very consistent, very prominent issue. Well, yeah, she's she's literally killing like four people a month. So one person a week. Like Oh yeah. And eats them as well. I was about to say cannibalism, and then I remembered, nope, that is not the definition of cannibalism. She is in fact a tiger. In fact, not a human. So not cannibalism. Although there is something like <laughs> I find that it's really easy to attribute a lot of anthropomorphized thought processes to her where you just like, like we said, like, you know, that's big lady energy or something like that. Like, you know, this is a, this is a big cat. Like it's an animal and people tend to like, even the verbiage used in the articles about her is like, she's a serial killer. She's homicidal. Even me, that's, you know. It's mm-hmm. so easy yeah. to, to scandalize this. And it is, oh, it oh, is it scandalous. Is, 100%. Like, 436 people died, minimum. There's debates about yeah. her having additional victims. And most of those were women and children, which just, it, it when you contextualize it into the grand scheme of things, just makes it, all the more tragic considering the amount of people in these villages who must have been affected by this. This is like you are constantly at fear of being hunted down by the same, Yeah, you know, lethal creature. And after a while, it just feels like she's, you know, I don't know. Like if it were me, humans are always looking for patterns. Like you start wondering like, Jesus, did I wrong God? Like what the fuck, man? And she was noted like... You know, she was noted to have only attacked people who were traveling alone and things like that. And that's really freaky. So anyway, Jim Corbett is officially on the trail, um, but loses the scent when she starts stalking him and he has to scare her away. So he realizes that this is not a one man job and he goes back to the village and ends up recruiting the help of local authorities. And they organize for the next day around noon, uh, a patrol of 300 villagers to corner the cat in the Champa River Gorge. They do so. And similar to that first patrol that that pushed her across the river um, and made her have to establish a new territory in a different country, 
they they do a similar thing, but but they're trying to surround her basically. And they managed right. to do that. And by midday, Corbett found himself face to face with the beast herself. And it took three mm. shots from his rifle to finally kill her. And she dropped a mere 20 feet away from him. Wow. Ooh. That's scary. One thing, though, I wonder, how how did no one manage to kill her before him? I think it's a... During, at some point during this decade, she was actively a threat. So that's a really good question and one that is really difficult to answer. Um, I'm sure, like, it's it's documented that there were several attempts. I think that the mere vastness of her territory and how quickly she could move from space to space made it really difficult. And then coupled with the fear element... I think it became very difficult to organize something as big as what Corbett managed to do. Right. Um, Okay, that's fair. And they acted quickly, right? So he found her and, according to him, saw her. And then the next day, by morning, they had arranged to have 300 people kind of, instead of flushing her out, they basically worked their way from the outside in to a designated spot. And mm-hmm. just kind of exactly. In. So no doubt a huge amount of that is just luck. Um, and a lot of that is attributed to his skill and prowess. But I agree with you that, you know, it is just as likely that someone else would have killed her at some point in this time if they were actively hunting her. I think that it's just a trick of being in the right place, the right time with the right strategy. Right. Yeah, that's fair. And especially because it was, you know, over 100 years ago. Yeah. So there's this, this, but it's so, it conjures such a visual of like all these people surrounding this cat in the middle of a gorge and she's cornered. She's desperate. She's like, you know, it's, it's not clear if she was actually charging him when she was killed, but it's kind of implied as yeah. pretty much everyone, including him, and he did end up writing um, a book about his experiences with man hunters, plural, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, and she she is mentioned in that. Um, and it is implied that she was kind of at least ready to charge um, because he talks about the precautions that he was taking to prevent her from reaching him. Um and her fearlessness in the face of danger was, like, well-documented. Everybody talks about that. Um, mm-hmm. Where okay. when when pushed, she she always defaulted to fighting. Makes sense. Um, so with that, she was killed. She was done. And indeed, the killings stopped, and they successfully vanquished the man-eater of Champawat. And story's over, right? She's just a freak, right? But what the mm. fuck? Like, why? You'd think, yeah. Because, you know, you could think, like, she's got to be some kind of anomalous, bloodthirsty predator bordering on the supernatural. Like, she's almost like a boogeyman, right? Seems to be, yeah. Well, yes and no. Oh. It is... 100% true that her kill count 
the documented kill count is far higher than any other known single animal. Right. From my research. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. To have achieved that, she must have been incredibly skilled at evading capture and selecting her targets. Mm Mm-hmm. Because hunting, like, the thing about predators in the wild is that that is an incredibly dangerous thing to be doing. Because if you're taking down any kind of prey, you don't know, like, there's always the potential of there being more than one, especially with humans, you getting shot or, you know, hit with a weapon. Um, There's the chance of you injuring yourself or falling or it going wrong and you starving to death. Like, so many things can potentially go wrong. And she managed to evade those for, like, about a decade, like, between seven and ten years. Yeah, that's crazy. However, her boldness was likely to have been more of a product of desperation as opposed to just a voracious bloodlust. After her death, she was actually found to have egregious tooth injuries um, on the right side of her mouth. Her top canine was broken in half and her bottom canine was broken down to the bone. Oh, yikes. Um, Likely from an old gunshot, according to Corbett. He posits that it was like a poacher or a hunter trying to defend himself, something like that. Um, And that injury probably would have prevented her from successfully hunting her natural prey. Ah, okay. Well, ah. So humans, while dangerous in numbers and often carrying weapons, uh, generally are much easier to hunt and kill as compared to faster, more savvy, adapted wildlife. Yeah, I bet. Especially Mm. unarmed women and children. Yeah, yeah. So that, if if that's the case and she could not keep up with and she couldn't catch her natural prey... It makes sense. She's going to have to adapt for survival. Exactly. And yeah, okay. In addition to that, the growing encroachment and deforestation, largely spurred by colonization and like economizing these villages, restricted her hunting area. So essentially narrowing her pool of available uh, prey animals to even attempt to hunt and increased her contact with humans. So she's already at a disadvantage. She's got a physical uh, disability that puts her at a lower likelihood of successfully capturing her natural prey. And all of a sudden there's all these humans around her who walk slowly and go out into the forest alone. And this pool of natural prey like you know her likelihood of catching them decreases further when they are also being hunted by humans and losing their habitat and all of that so whereas you know maybe she could have captured i don't know like one in ten wild boars what if there's only five of them you know exactly yeah so just drastically reduces her you know chance of finding prey naturally and and when you consider that all of a sudden there's all these humans around and they all seem much easier to catch then it becomes not really a story of if and more when when exactly yeah well 
In fact, that story is far from unique. And while tiger attacks, like I was saying, there's an estimated verifiable 373,000 people killed by tigers over like a 210 year span. Um, okay. While that, that kind of incidence of tiger attacks in general have steadily declined over the past few decades, spikes of activity are still occurring and particularly in the Sundarbans Delta on the Bay of Bengal, or the Upper Pradesh region of Northern India, and even in Nepal's Royal Chitwan Natural Park, you'll see these resurgence of attacks. Um, and when a wild animal becomes desperate, they become unpredictable. And the result yeah. is often death for humans and cats alike, uh, because those cats end up having to be culled. Uh, which is all the more terrifying considering the dwindling tiger populations in the wild, especially of royal yeah. Bengal tigers, which is what they tend to be. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That's very, very scary for the tigers. That's terrifying. Um, but it is an interesting thing to note that, especially in the Sundarbans Delta on the Bay of Bengal, um, a lot of the tigers are actually considered healthy when they're found uh hmm. which is terrifying <laughs> considering that it suggests that there's an entire pool of tigers that have just roped humans into their natural uh like prey yeah i guess their natural food source and their remaining healthy healthy diet <laughs> well yeah and it's like it's not like because generally speaking these man hunting tigers pretty much all of them have some kind of injury or disability that would impact their ability to hunt um right. and so they choose humans as a natural like as a as an easy uh prey right well in some areas of india we don't actually see the same decrease in tiger attacks that we have recently. Um, they, those spikes are much more frequent. And it's like people aren't really 100% sure why those tigers are attacking. Um, and so it's been suggested that um, for certain areas, tigers have just, as a reaction to having less territory, have just started being opportunistic when it comes to killing humans instead of avoiding them. Um, but that's just a theory. Okay. So most of the time, man-eating tigers, and this was the case with our hero of the week, um, are doing so out of pure necessity and having no other options. Yeah. As for Jim Corbett... Killing the man-eater of Champawat cemented him as the man to call when nobody else could crack it. And he went on to kill at least 11 other man-eating big cats, mostly tigers mm. and a couple of leopards. Okay. Uh, so when I was saying, like, man-eaters, plural, uh, this was the first of many for him. Okay. And he did publish a book about his stories, I believe, in the 40s. Um about his stories of, you know, his years as a man-hunting hunter. Right. Uh, or a man-eating hunter. Um, mm -hmm. And those stories are pretty wild, but um, 
In his later years, he transitioned to a more conservationist mindset, uh, trading his guns in for cameras, and he became more of like a wildlife photographer until his death okay. in the 50s. Um, and okay, I like that term. He publicly sought to observe the animals in their natural habitat and protect them from human encro- encroachment. Okay, I like that. That's that's a good turn of character, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, it's He's often almost evangelized in a lot of ways, um, especially still in India. Uh, there's, like, rumors, like, there, there's, like, myths, basically, that he only ever killed a big cat who killed a man first, but that's not true. He also hunted for sport, um, and there are cases of him killing noted big cats. He basically just... When he was a hunter, he was hunting more for the, like, biggest prize. And that just happened to be man-eaters a lot of the time. Um, And he was still, like, you know, there's nuance to him, right? He was rubbing elbows with colonialist white people in India and reaping the rewards of that schism in society. Uh, But at the same time, like, he still did a lot of good conservation work and did a lot to protect these villagers as well. So it's a complicated, like, he was a complicated man, as everybody is. This story in particular is really easy to idealize, and it sounds like almost like a, like a Indiana Jones level origin story where this man finds his calling to you know kill psychotic animals that need to be put down and he's this dashing british man running in to save the day barely skirting Mm -hmm. death himself exactly barely escaping with his life and he'd do anything to save these villagers yeah it's important to remember in this case that over 400 human lives were lost all because a tiger was driven to desperate measures yeah. Ooh, it's just the number itself is still what's getting me that. It's scary. That's a scary so number. It's, it's just such a sheer huge amount of people. And even spread out, like like I said, even spread out over 10 years, that's still like a person a week, basically. Yeah. One person a week, 10 years, one animal. And it's also important, as you were mentioning, to avoid discounting the efforts of the villagers and the local authorities. Um, She wasn't brought down by Jim alone. He fired the shots, but it took him and 300 other people uh, at his side to corner her. And it's tempting to kind of fall into that same paternalistic rhetoric that kind of colors so many stories of British India and the interesting white men raised in it. Um, But I think that the best way to conclude this tale is with a quote from Dane Hucklebridge um, in his 2019 book about the Chapawat tiger, No Beast So Fierce. And he says... It is a timeless tale of cunning and courage, but also a lesson still very much pertinent today about how deforestation, industrialization, and colonization can upset the fragile balance of cultures and ecosystems alike, creating unseen pressures that, at a certain point, must find their release. 
sometimes even in the form of a man-eating tiger. Well, there you go. Ain't that the truth? That's it. That's my tale. Ah, well, that was a very, very spicy tale. I must say that's that's insane. I would never have expected one singular animal to be tracked down to have killed that many people. And more. Would you say it's even weird? I would say, I would go as far to say that it is weird. Yes. Some weird shit right there. It is some weird shit. So carrying on with more weird shit, I can begin now. Indeed. Um, so again, this week, um, with our prompt curiosity killed the cat, I kind of dropped <laughs> the curiosity aspect as well. But like we were saying earlier, this is these tales are both, I think, still pretty curious. Um, the concept around them is curious. The concept around um, what I'm going to be speaking about is definitely curious. So I'll jump in now. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking about the superstitions surrounding black cats, where those superstitions originated, um, and why black cats were and are regarded as bad luck or superstitious or as a bad omen. So... Ooh. Yes. So, you know, I thought I, I didn't really know anything about this other than the fact that black cats are associated with witches, you know, bad omens, bad luck. Don't let one cross your path or, you know, beware if one does cross your path. So for the record, I grew up with a black cat and he brought nothing but joy to my life. Exactly. I have never met a I've never met a black cat that I have felt suspicious of. <laughs> At all in any way, you know, I don't myself believe in this superstition, but I think the origins are very strange, weird, I could say. And, you know, they're still upheld, it seems. So these superstitions do vary from culture to culture around the world, but black cats are actually seen as a as generally a positive presence in uh, several Celtic nations, most of Great Britain, as well as in Japanese folklore. Hell so yeah. something that I found that was pretty interesting is that even though they're seen as a positive presence or like a positive omen in many Celtic nations, Celtic mythology um, states something very interesting. So in Celtic mythology, uh, a legend does exist uh, regarding a creature by the name of the cat Sith. I think it's pronounced Sith, S-I-T-H. Anyway, so the cat Sith supposedly resembled a large black cat with white spot with sorry with one white spot on its chest myth does recall that the cat sith could steal a person's soul before the gods could claim it after that person had died uh, by passing over the corpse before the burial began so as long as the person who had died had not been buried or the burial hadn't begun um, this cat Sith could just sneak on over that body, just yoink, steal the soul Jesus right Christ. out of that body. Yeah, and then the gods could not get a hold of that soul. So, yeah, so that's, I found that very interesting. Uh, as a result of this mythology, watches were organized and scheduled, like overnight watches, you know, just all the time to keep this, to hopefully keep this mythical creature away from the recently deceased. So... That's interesting. Um, one thing that I found very prominent in my research was that Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, held black cats to a very high degree of respect and admiration um, all the time, like all throughout ancient uh, Egyptian times. 
So the Egyptians actually had a god of cats. Uh, the Egyptian god of cat was named Bastet. Uh, and Bastet was often per- portrayed as a woman with the head of a black cat. So That's my final form, just saying. Yeah. Oh, I can see that. That's definitely your final form. <laughs> uh, head of a black cat, body of a woman, Egyptian goddess. Just... It appeals to me. Just... It does. Living live your best Man, life. Man, their gods were so fucking cool looking. Like, they just I they know. just went for it every time. Good for them. I know. I know. I, I love how they just gave their all every single time, you know? They definitely were putting in the effort. Just the, every single one of them is just really cool. So, because of this really high degree of respect and admiration for cats, especially black cats in uh, ancient Egyptian times... The injuring or killing of a cat in Egypt at the time was considered a capital crime and was punishable by death. So if you're in ancient Egypt and you're injuring, killing a cat, even if you just injure a cat, you can face the death penalty. Are you getting the vibe that like the cats just, I feel like the cats were doing mind magic. Oh, they definitely were. I feel like the cats were, the cats were running Egypt. (laughs) I, that's 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 the impression I'm getting here. So in families in ancient Egypt, when their family cat died, a lot of ancient Egyptian families would have a family cat. Um, the cat was mummified traditionally and the family went into mourning. So they were yeah, very respected, very loved. Um, and in addition to ancient uh, Egyptians, ancient Romans were also known to consider the cat sacred. Um, they really respected the cat. They loved cats loved black cats loved all domesticated cats um and the romans were who supposedly introduced the domesticated cat to the rest of europe so it was really only during the middle ages in europe that black cats began to be associated with negative evil connotations so historically black cats were associated with witchcraft and evil. So in Hebrew and Babylonian folklore, cats were compared to serpents coiled up on a hearth, on a fireplace hearth. Uh, in most European countries, a black cat crossing one's path is considered bad luck because of this evil connotation um, compared to serpents um, and serpents compared to the devil. Jesus. So... Yeah, so black cats were eventually, with all the suspicion going around, black cats were suspected of being familiars of witches and of aiding witches in their evil deeds and daily activities. (laughs) So they were believed to be shapeshifters so that witches could transform into them by reciting a spell. Um, Witches could transform back and forth between their human form, their black cat form. I, I know. feel Wouldn't like that be peak awesome? life is house cat Scur- life. Oh, for sure. House cat life. And then you can scurry around, go outside when you please, turn into a witch to just fuck some shit up whenever you please. And you just like, like, I don't know. I get jealous of my cat constantly. <laughs> like, you don't have to go to work. Yeah. You don't have to do shit. Oh. I feed you. I house you. Yeah. You bitch. Yeah. Anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, with the whole uh, cats being suspected of being familiars with witches or familiars of witches, they were believed to be shapeshifters. Um, 
And with that whole uh, cats being compared to serpents, um, this cats being compared to serpents um, was also related to the fact that people believe that the devil itself regularly took the form of a black cat. The devil itself was said to take the form of a serpent. So people also believe that the devil would take form of a black cat and wreak havoc in that form. So as a result of this, on holy days, like such as Easter during the Middle Ages, black cats were said to be routinely hunted down and burned. No beans. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you imagine where the logic is beans. coming from here? <laughs> where you think, well, look at the calendar. It's Easter today. I better go look for a cat to I burn. Mean, I, I can't. Maybe if you would ask <laughs> well, me, like, I don't know, a year ago... I would be like, I I have no idea. I don't understand. But with this whole mask thing going on, I'm realizing that your average person yeah. just might. Like, there's a subsection of the population that just isn't very compassionate oh. or sympathetic to the plight of yeah. others. And oh, that for sure. subsection is very loud. Oh, very loud. Very loud. I definitely agree. There's definitely a lack of compassion there. A lack of... Yeah, care for other people's health and safety. Um, yeah, we can definitely talk about the the anti-masker subgroup. We could definitely say that in the ways that they lack logic in making their decisions, maybe these people in the Middle Ages also lacked that kind of logic and common sense when they were deciding to burn cats. I'm sure there were people who were like, what the fuck drugs are you guys taking? Like, what's wrong with yeah. you? Yeah, what's wrong with you? Exactly. They're like, you know where's your common sense? And they say, where's your common sense? And then the people asking the question realize that common sense is not that common. <laughs> anyway, so past the Middle Ages now, by the 17th century, the cat, and especially the black cat, uh, began to be associated with witchcraft always, always associated with rich witchcraft, especially uh, in Europe, Western world, um, Western culture. Um, so in areas of the world where the cat was deemed as an omen of good luck, like a good omen, um, this turned to bad in many areas. So, uh, in a lot of the westernized world by the 17th century, the black cat was viewed as a bad omen. So, uh, I was actually looking into, you know, the urban legend of, oh, a black cat crossing your path is bad luck. So... The first recorded instance of this urban legend um, was involving a father and son during... So it was reported in the 1560s. So this is where I found this. Who knows if that was the actual decade? Long time ago. Still in the Middle Ages. Um, I guess that's approaching the Renaissance. I don't know. Um, but basically a father and son during the 1560s in the town of Lincolnshire, England, uh, came across a black cat who happened to be crossing their path. So this cat, I assume, is walking in front of them or walking around them or just in their path in any way. Uh, when they noticed this cat, they were said to have pelted stones at it repeatedly. Aww. I know, which is just, can you imagine? Can you imagine now if you saw any two people, like a father and a son? Oh, they'd know, be catching man, these a hands. A boy. Oh, they would be catching hands. They would be, oh, they would be torn up heart by social media as well if there was any footage of them like pelting stones at one singular cat fuck that i'll become a tiny ball of fists and terror anyway 
this father and son decided that they had to pelt stones at this cat in the attempts to make it run away. So, duh, they were successful in their endeavor. So the cat did run away because this cat does not want to be pelted with fucking stones any longer. I do not blame this cat. So the cat ran away and supposedly ran into a house along the street. So this house was considered to be under the ownership of a woman that was locally very infamous for practicing witchcraft. So, Lore says that, or Lore states that the father and son ran into this woman in question the very next day to find that she was limping and appeared to be heavily bruised from what seemed to be an injury to her leg. Mm. So, yes. So here's where this little, this is where this assumption began. So they assumed witches could turn into black cats at night, you know, by reciting a spell, uh, shapeshift, transform between that human and that feline form. Uh, and they assumed that they could turn into cats at night to roam around unobserved, wreak havoc, you know, unobserved, um, to be able to fly under the radar. So no one is expecting, no one is viewing, no one is publicly seeing a witch uh, wreaking havoc at night. So they're roaming around a little bit more stealthily. So... This belief then that witches were witch, witches and witchcraft were di- directly related to black cats and black cats were seen as a bad omen and not to be trusted. Um, this belief spread to North America and particularly the United States with the first colonizers that arrived in the States from Britain and other areas of Europe. Uh, and this belief was held firmly during the Salem witch trials. Um, so actually I wasn't able to find too much information regarding like the significance or the importance of black cats during the Salem witch trials and like the Salem witch trial era in the United States. Um, but I was able to find a little bit regarding black cats in the Salem witch trial. So black cats were like indefinitely, you know, linked to witches and witchcraft during these witch trials. Um, and evidence used at these trials to prove that one was in fact a witch or was guilty of practicing witchcraft um, included having unusual birthmarks on the body, <laughs> owning a cat, a black cat, or like a doll. I was just able to find a doll, so I guess um, some kind, any of, kind of doll. Yeah. Or, yeah, some kind of doll figurine um, could be associated with kind of like a voodoo connotation. But anyway, so yeah, the evidence was if they had if they had unusual birthmarks on the body, if they owned a cat or a doll, and if they appeared in someone else's dream. So if Dude. yeah, so if any of these things happen to you, bam, you're a witch. I guess so. Everyone can you imagine? I know is a witch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because like everyone's got. I mean, what's an unusual birthmark? Anything can be like an unusual birthmark. Like I have like yeah, and like. Yeah, I was just gonna say I have a really big birthmark behind my ear. Maybe that could be seen as unusual. I don't know. Well, I just know that like they basically de- decided that someone was a witch and then looked for all these things. Yeah, so... exactly. Like they were so certain. They're like, well, that's the witch. We've weeded them out. Now let's try to find some evidence and some proof so that we can justify it to ourselves when we burn them at the stake. Yeah, that was. Well, we don't even need to get into the sheer insanity of 
that and those trials and that culture. But anyway, so yeah, if you had an unusual birthmark, if you owned a cat or a doll, and if you appeared in someone else's dream, like, uh, that's so ridiculous. So if someone dreams about you, she's a witch. You are not safe. Burn yeah, her. you're no longer safe. Yeah. So yeah. So that's that's kind of where the black cat's significance was seen in the Salem witch trials. Um, and something that I found very interesting, so sad, obviously, uh, but very interesting was that although black cats were completely 100% suspected of being associated with witches and witchcraft during the trials. No cats, I, was, I wasn't I was able to find record of any cats that were executed during the Salem witch trials. So I was able to find that, of course, I you know, no one knows. These numbers are likely not accurate, but um, during the Salem witch trials, I found that 15 women and five men were executed for being suspected witches. Um, and no black cats, no cats, uh, at all, let alone black cats were executed during the Salem witch trials. Um, only two dogs, which, you know, oh, why you gotta, I don't know. I wasn't able to find why. So it was 15 women, five men, or, you know, sorry, 14 I women, five men, and two like, dogs. Cause I just, I know that in places where there's a feral cat population or something like that, you tend to have, like, community cats where it's, like, it's just a cat that everyone feeds that just kind of does its thing. Yeah. So I do wonder if it's maybe because cats were living, like, it was less that he, your household had a cat and it was more just cats in the neighborhood. And so it could be a case of, like, they were just, again, kind of grasping at straws to convict someone for like looking after a cat and that could mean that by the time the person's been like hunted down and tortured into confessing or whatever the cat could be long gone right so yeah they're they're very wily whereas dogs are naturally more trusting so yeah yeah naturally more trusting um kind of with that loyalty to their companion and harder to hide like cats can just disappear into the wilderness right so exactly those boys are sneaky they are light on their feet you do not see or hear them coming but that is interesting (laughs) you do not see or hear them going yeah i thought that was really interesting so yeah no cats no black cats at all were executed during these trials um so yeah um that is the information that I've got regarding the significance of black cats and the superstition around them and where the superstition began. So yeah, it was really during the Middle Ages in Europe uh, that black cats began to be associated with evil connotations, um, potentially being Satan in cat form, uh, and being associated with witches and witchcraft. So... After all of this speculation um, and superstition uh, is where the long association of black cats with witchcraft and superstition and the supernatural uh, came to be. That's really wild, man. I mean, yeah, yeah. Even now, uh, I know that there's like, I've seen the statistics where it's like cats, like black cats are significantly less likely to be adopted than. other types of like fur colors in cats um and i honestly i wouldn't have thought that but it it does make complete sense because you do have a lot of people that are superstitious yeah and tons of people are superstitious and you don't really like 
I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. A little, just a little, little bit stitious. I'm a little stitious. I'll say it. Depends on what it is. But it's you just, know? it's on strange the to me where it's like, the thing with cats is it's like demonstrably ridiculous. Yeah. Like it's a cat. Yeah. They're all just yeah. kind of dicks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're they're not going to be the nicest creature. But Aww, I mean, it's Elvira's literally. So sweet, though. Why you mean? Yeah. Oh, she's. I know. She's. She's a sweetie. And I have to say, you know, earlier in life, I definitely met some cats that I did not love. I got scratched. You know, did not have a great relationship with cats. But I know so many cats now. I know so many pets that are so loving and completely go against that stereotype. I think it's just a case of like cats will always be this like they're they're more of like an aloof pet where they they don't it's more difficult to anthropomorphize them than it is with dogs and they're not like they they have different like i would say the language barrier for lack of a better term you know between cats (laughs) and humans is much broader than between say cats and dogs and i think that that like air of mystique is what kind of informs people's reverence and fear of them because they're they are difficult to predict and difficult to understand mm-hmm. yeah oh, definitely it, it makes sense to me that definitely could be a reason could be a contributing factor to their mystique hell yeah dude yeah yeah you know i definitely think it could be one thing that i found was really interesting that i didn't previously know was the I guess I'd say it's a borderline obsession, like so much of an appreciation and an admiration for cats in ancient Egypt that it was like a borderline obsession. Um, I thought that was really interesting, especially can you imagine if you're out here living your life in ancient Egypt, say heaven forbid you accidentally, you're a good person. You're not out here to kill a cat. Say, say you accidentally, heaven forbid, injure a cat. Like you are not trying to hurt this cat. You like you are run just trying over to go it with about a your day. Or something. A cart, yeah. Say you accidentally, you don't even kill this cat, you injure it. Well, someone catches you, you're dead. You're facing your the death penalty. Up. Yeah, your shit's fucked up. You are gone. No chances. They they see that happen and they say, gone, out. Don't fuck no with more cats, chances. Man. Yeah, don't fuck with cats. That's what they say, you know. Thank you for sharing, Samantha. Ah, thank you as well. I'd say we both had really interesting stories. I really do like that we both took uh, the cat route. They're just so precious. Even though my cat was not very precious. Yeah. Well, you know, I still, I still must say I respect her because you know she's, well, she's, she's trying to survive. You know, it's she's in survival mode. That's all she knows. She's, she's got a. She's got to keep herself alive, and she did it in a very terrifying way. But I must say, I don't know. I don't. She's like an anti-hero of her own story. Yeah, I was gonna say she's like an anti-hero of her own story, but I'll say she's a little bit badass. Can you imagine she's going home to her tiger friends and she's like, "Hey guys, you know, just killed my fourth human this week." <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you for listening, peeps. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you. And you can find us on social media at Weird Shit Weekly um, on Twitter and Instagram. And you are more than welcome to shoot us an email about this week's prompt or next week's prompt at weirdshitweekly at gmail.com, all lowercase, no spaces. Uh, 
Sam, would you like to introduce next week's prompt? I would. So next week's prompt, we'll have to see which direction we go down with this one. This is going to be interesting. So next week, we will be discussing the prompt of you are what you eat. Yes. It's going to be a good one. It will be. All right. Well, as always, thank you all for listening. We will see you next week when we talk about some more weird shit.